City on the Edge, the uh, podcast where we tell Albuquerque stories. It's like a radio show on the internet. <laughs> I'm your host, Ty Bannerman. Here's my henchman, Mike Smith. Yeah, what uh, I don't know about this role defining <laughs> stuff Ty's doing here, but here's Mike Smith. What's up? <laughs> and uh, today, let's see, last week, if you, uh, if you listen, we talked about the story of New Albuquerque's very first law map. Last week we uh, we told you the story of Milton J. Yarberry, Albuquerque, New Albuquerque's very first lawman, a guy who was hired by the town of New Albuquerque in 1881, and hanged in 1883 after basically unloading his gun at anybody he felt uh, had had done him some sort of wrong. Yeah, he was not a good dude overall. And this week we are going to be jumping forward 134 years later and talking yes. about the state of the Albuquerque. Police force and various controversies today, and we uh, we we're yeah. going to talk to uh, we're going to hear an interview I did with Jeff Proctor, who um, has written about uh, written about the Albuquerque Police Department's problems mm-hmm. over the last few years for New Mexico in Depth, mm-hmm. KRQE, and the Albuquerque that. Journal. But first, yeah. we have our segment of oh, yeah. chit chat. Oh, hello, hi Ty, how's it going? It's good, Mike. How are you doing oh, today? Oh, good. Um, yeah, what have, you been, what have you been up to lately? Well, it's 102 degrees here in Albuquerque, and uh, my kids want to go out and hunt Pokemon all over the streets oh, of my neighborhood. And, I think uh, I'm going to resist. I think I'm opting out. I don't know. I, don't, <laughs> I realize it's getting people to go outside and look at things, but I do that already. And I don't think my kids need one more digital thing that no, they have to do. You know? No, no. If, if you can avoid it, I'd say it's, uh, yeah. it's worthwhile. I want them to stick with Duolingo and learn a language. While no, that's a very good one. I'm all around it, you know. But well, you took an interesting trip this I last week. I did, weekend. yeah. I took my, um, my daughter out to a summer camp at an undisclosed location in New Mexico. Why would I say that? Um, okay. But, but <laughs> on the air, you never know. There's creeps out there. Probably not among our listenership. They seem of course, cool. all our listeners are very, yeah, very good, socially but, well-adjusted people. But anyway, I took my kid to a camp, and um, I was uh, I was driving home, and I passed through a town in New Mexico. Uh, about an hour, I decided to take a different way back, and I passed through a town in New Mexico, Blue Water. Blue Water, and, New Mexico. Yeah, and, I, and uh, it's about two hours east of here. And I've never really spent any time there. I think I went there once as a kid um, because of what I'm about to talk about. Um, but uh, my great-grandfather died there in 1913 oh, okay. of appendicitis. His name was Heber M. Clough, and uh, he was like with a bunch of Mormon settlers. His name was he- Heber Manassas Clough. Heber Manassas yeah. Clough. Clough, yeah. And Clough is, uh, he, w- he was the father of my, mom, my dad's mom, um, who... His, so his daughter, Drusa, who was born in 1899, was my dad's biological uh, mother. And she died when my dad was two years old in a car wreck with her husband, my dad's dad. And uh, he was raised by, by another family member. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so it was so interesting. He, this guy was a packer. He would, he would help uh, like mule trains and, and horse uh. trains and, and uh, taking, taking stuff out across really remote areas and distances in New Mexico okay. a lot. And okay. before that, he worked in the Gila Mountains uh, or Mount Graham uh, outside of Safford, Arizona, where I went to college for a year. So it's really weird. Like I've got this yeah. like, family history in the West that's like that interrelates with my own history. Right. Um, 
And, uh, and so anyway, I, I remembered that he was buried there, and I decided I was going to find it. And so I went to this cemetery. I, I just drove through the town. There's only like five roads there. And I found uh, a road called Cemetery Road, and I drove there, and there was a cemetery called Pioneer Memorial Park, and I was walking around, and I didn't find it. So then I looked up on my phone to see if there was another cemetery there. There was. It was this little family plot of like eight oh. graves on a hill, the Fred McNeil Cemetery or something like that. Or, or no, not Fred McNeil. The McNeil Family Cemetery, okay. I think that was it. And uh, so then I called my dad. I was like, Dad, I can't find this. And he gave me rough instructions uh, oh, to, so where, where, to where it was. was. He had been there before, and it was in the first cemetery. And I went there, but while trying to find it, I also found this letter online that a family history website had posted. Oh. And it was the last letter that he ever wrote. He wrote it while he was dying of appendicitis in Blue Water. Uh, and it's freaking awesome. Can I read it? Because it's yeah. like an interesting glimpse of like frontier New Mexico a little okay. bit. But it's like... 1913. So this right. is one year before World War One, so. and and uh, like it was a pretty modern time. There were people driving around with cars at this time. But the life he's describing still sounds pioneer, and I think that's because New Mexico was so poor. And you listen and you listen to the money situation that he's talking about here. It's really fascinating. I also think it's really interesting that he was allegedly really Mormon, but there's I don't see any trace of religion hmm. in this at all. I think he was probably like me, where he was like a doubter from yeah, the very first moment he was born. You know, like kind of um, in the closet. Yeah, you know, even even if he was in that culture or something. Yeah. And I recognize elements of myself in this. He's really rambly. I don't know if you noticed, but I ramble on <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> that's you know? that's why we have a podcast. He also he cries when his horses are are in pain, oh. and like I mean, it's, when he thinks about this memory. Anyway, listen. This. Okay, this is, so let's take a moment here okay. so we can kind of. Yeah. It's like I have I have I I have this sudden inspiration. Okay, I want to like maybe do a little like a sound effect intro or something oh, okay, as okay, we okay. go back okay. to 1913. Okay, and right. uh, what is his name again? Heber M. Clough. Heber M. Clough. Yeah. All right. This is a letter from Heber M. Clough to his children, written on June 13th, 1913, from Blue Water, New Mexico, approximately one month before he died. Clough Brothers, dear boys and girls, I will pencil you a few lines to say I arrived last night. Had quite a hard trip on me and also on the team. The drives without water was hard on them. I took bad with my stomach, was quite bad all the way back, and am feeling pretty rocky now, can't hardly set up to write this. Have been down most all day. Well, I sure hope I am not going to have another time as I had last summer. One reason, stomach, for my coming back, I went without my oil, and we had all kinds of water, and so my meals was very irregular and not the best either. Had to get them just when I could, for we drove all hours of the night. So all in all, it has got me just about where I was. I sure hated to write this, for I have been so encouraged. have been feeling so well while I have been here. We were two days more making the trip than we counted on. We had various experiences. The men we were hauling for misrepresented the distance, also the road. Well, I hope you are all well and a doing well. I can't tell just now what I will be able to do till a few days. I sure would like to be putting in oats for hay so we wouldn't have to pay out all we make for feed. It takes most all I am a making to feed the team. If we had our own feed, we could do something. So if we don't make a start in that direction, we will be handicapped next year. The reason I didn't write any word when I arrived to Blue Water, a man arrived on the train the same time after teams to haul goods, and I was so anxious to make a dollar I couldn't see how I could refuse. And he put it up to me in a nice way what good roads he had, and I needed some money to send to the folks as I didn't get any from Frank, and I had not got my little returns from the wool haul, and the folks kept writing that they were sure in need and had been for some time. Well, I didn't intend to write this way when I began, but I am so full I will have to exhaust a little or I will bust, for it seems as though I have been headed off in every way imaginable because I have wanted to get a little money to send home. But I will run the gauntlet as long as I can, then I will give up the chase. I don't suppose I would write this way, but not being well, I feel a little bad. 
so you will excuse me. There are other conditions that are worse on me than my stomach trouble. Now I will close on this subject. I didn't intend to write this way. I will be up if I am not able to work so you can put the team to work. That is, if you can. I sure hope I will be able to keep on working, for I had rather work night and day than to get down where I was last summer. I hope if the truck hasn't come, it won't be much longer, for it has been a great calamity on us not being here long ago. Don't let any good weather go by if you can keep well, because it won't be so you can work much soon. I guess Minerva got there all right. I haven't felt homesick until now. If I could keep working, I would be all right, but I guess I will be as blue as blue water if I, can, if I get so I can't work. Well, I still keep on. Can't find a place to leave off. How does Minerva like this country? I guess it's equal to Tucson as long as she is with the old boy. I know how she will appreciate that. Well, write if you have time and, any, and have anything to write. I'm here upstairs in my old bed. Ha ha. It's good to have a place to lie down when you can't stand up. These folks are sure good to me. If you have anything for the team to do and can't keep them busy, say so. Say, boys, I sure appreciate a good team, for I had a chance in this trip to make me fairly love this old team, the Nelson boys' horses. Every one of them gave out so they couldn't move. I was sure pitiful. We had to drive them hard all day until night without water, and before we could reach water, they gave out at the foot of a hill, and the poor things couldn't tighten their tugs. They, the boys, was going to unhitch at the foot or on the hill, and they couldn't pull one load up with both teams, notwithstanding the old gray team had been over the same road. I had to or did pull both of their loads up this hill so as not to pull a hill in the morning. And then we unhitched them and had to drive them four miles, therefore, back to water. And then the old grays had to be tied up to one flake of hay that night, which almost broke the old man's heart. The next day was a fright. We was all day making five miles through sand hills where there never was a wagon. The old grays broke the road, had on the same as 3,500. Oh, my, I think more of them old boys than I can tell. Well, this is only a little, so boys learn to appreciate a good thing if you have one, for I saw some blue boys on the trip, and to think what I had ahead of them, and a good thing for them, too. Their teams were good, but too small. Well, I have kept on till I have got on another subject and got myself to dropping water on this letter. But you don't have any love letters to read now, so you can afford to read this, nor do you have any newspapers to read. How I had better close. I just got a couple of letters from home. They were awaiting me here. There's others that have the blues from the sound of my letters, so boys, you ought to be glad as long as you have all of your little flock with you and are not scattered all over in one place. I guess Delbert is in one place, Levon in another. The little girls are scattered, some up here, and I am here all by myself. So while I have been writing today and thinking over the conditions, I have almost been blue. I got a letter from Levon. I had to almost smile at the way he wrote. He is living up on the ranch with Ammon. He says his wife is good enough to him, but he says Ammon is cross to him. He says, I don't see many men like my father. Well, others of my children can say the same if they want to. Well, goodbye for now from your father, H.M. Clough. Man. Isn't that cool? It's heartbreaking in a way. It really is. He's so poor and sick, and like his his environment is like yeah. His kids are scattered everywhere. It's sort of tender, you know. Yeah. Like he seems very uh, yeah. You know, kind of loving. Yeah, it's true. Of his family. I think he's a nice guy. Yeah. See, I think it starts with the word words "cluff bros." I think this is a transcribed letter that I'm reading, but I think that was like the stationery at the beginning because apparently Mm. he had a brother who was like his best friend and did everything with him all the time. And, and they must have been in business together as haulers, I guess. And he died soon after this letter was written? Yeah. Uh, Heber M. Clough, my, my great-grandfather, died like a month after. His, wow. his grave says, uh, I think his grave says June. So this, June. And this is okay. May 15th. Oh, yeah. So, so yeah. pretty soon after. Yeah. But it, to me, I mean, there's some stuff I don't understand, a little terminology and specifics and stuff boys, like that. The Blue Boys. The Blue Boys. Are these that kind of horses or something, I maybe? I don't know. That's like, a good question. So yeah, Blue Appaloosas. Or, I don't know. I don't know if they're horses. Um, but, or like, what's the... Like the old grays broke the road, had on the same as 3,500. I don't like that's yeah. maybe is that a road number? Maybe is there like a county road 3,500 or something? I don't know. Huh, I w- I'm, I'm curious, 
But um, but I just find it so interesting, you know? Just yeah, totally. absolutely. This, and and, this and so then peak. I found, yeah, so then I found his grave, and it was like doubly exciting because I felt yeah. like I had kind of glimpsed this guy's personality, and right. I just felt this like timelessness. I felt like that I existed across time and so many different people, forward and backwards. That I exist in my children and, yeah. and their children that I've never even met yet, you know, that don't even exist yet, and in some future generation, two hundred years from now, and some distant one thousands of years before, think of all the people that had to survive and experience and live and feel for us to be here today, you know? Miserable stomach aches oh, and I worries know. about money and all that stuff, you know? It's crazy. We might not have even liked all these people, <laughs> you know, seriously. I think I would have liked him, though. He seemed yeah, cool. Yeah, he, he does seem cool. Um, I, yeah. But, but um, it made me, I'm going to find all my ancestors' graves in the Southwest that I can find, because okay. there's quite a few. Like, I once went down to uh, Nuevos Casas Grandes down in Mexico to find, to find some down there. Um, because when polygamy was outlawed, my ancestors who were like Mormon fundamentalists, a lot of them escaped down to Mexico mm -hmm. to like get away from the law. Yeah. And I went down there <laughs> once and I saw people with my mannerisms and things like they would oh, fold wow. their arms behind their backs and their last names were Clough. And they like, it was just like weird. There's like, you know, yeah, it's crazy. your people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy stuff, man. And we we're just like, we think we're ourselves, but we're also so yeah, much more, so man. Many we, people so much genetic stuff, you know, wrapped up in us. And if epigenetics are real, like the you know behaviors yeah. of any sort can be passed. I mean, who knows, man? Yeah, you know, there's also learned stuff, of course, that unbroken chain of people raising each other and so on, you know. Well, anyway, yeah. What, shall sorry, we talk about sorry, the? Uh, <laughs> oh no, no, no! Yeah. I think it's very cool. But it was very exciting. Yeah. Shall we talk about the police? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I sat down with, uh, with Jeff Proctor, okay. um, and the reason I, I did that was I, I feel like it's real easy to kind of latch on to some of the specific incidents that have happened, you know, yeah. the James Boyd yeah, killing and so yeah. forth. Uh, but it's like really important to remember that this is all taking place over, you know, literally decades yeah, of, yeah. of issues that the Albuquerque Police oh, Department decades, has been having. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. Like, there's been times where it's been, like, two steps forward, then one yeah. step back over yeah. and over again. And, uh, you know, Proctor was kind of fascinating. Like, he, he knows everything about it. Oh, I can't so. wait to hear this interview. This <laughs> okay. is great, man. Um, that's cool. Yeah. And okay, so I am uh, joined today by Jeff Proctor of New Mexico In-Depth, um, formerly of KRQE. Is that right? Or? Uh, yeah, I was the I was the criminal justice reporter at the Albuquerque Journal for ten mm -hmm. years, and okay. then spent two years as an investigations reporter and producer at KRQE. After that, okay, great. Um, and he is going to fill us in on what has been happening on the local law enforcement scene, um, especially concerning the Albuquerque Police Department's use of force controversies over the last what. I'd say it really started reaching a fever pitch the last couple of years, like two years ago. Uh, right? No, this time around, I would say probably things started to really sort of boil again in 2009 and 2010. Okay. So, all right. So what was going on in 2009, 2010? Because I'm not as familiar with that time period. People started to really pay super close attention in 2010 because there were a record number of citizens shot by the police here. There were 14 people shot by city police during the year of 2010. So just one year. Yeah, in one year there were 14 police shootings that year. And that was a record number? It was it? a record number. Typically Albuquerque dating back to the late 1990s, um, early 2000s averaged about seven police shootings a year, mm -hmm. um, which is higher than the national average. But okay. that year in 2010 there were so there were twice that many. So Double that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, 
Was there any particular incident at that point that kind of uh, caught the public's attention? There were a couple of shootings in particular that year that mm -hmm. I think really got people's attention. One that happened early that year in January of 2010 um, involving an Iraq war vet by the name of Kenneth Ellis III. Okay. Yeah, I remember that was actually. a case that, uh, that certainly got a lot of people's attention, uh, a lot of people's attention, mm -hmm. and the circumstances sur surrounding that shooting um, were questionable. And, right. and I think people began to to start to ask a lot of questions around that time. And like a lot of the more um, recent ones that, that involved some mental illness, is that is that right? Yes, and certainly that was the case with Mr. Ellis as well. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, as it turns out, a, a number of the police shootings that have taken place here in mm -hmm. the last half dozen years, since we've got really good, strong data for each of the cases, right. um, has involved people who were living with mental illness. And uh, okay, so, what was that uh, situation like? Like, what what happened in the um, in the Ellis shooting that um, seemed problematic? Uh, a number of APD detectives had been surveilling the area as mm -hmm. part of a operation looking into auto theft, stolen cars. Okay. They followed Mr. Ellis from uh, an apartment near there. He pulled into the parking lot of, um, I believe it was the Seven Eleven up at Eubank mm -hmm. and Constitution. I think is where it was. They pinned him into uh, the parking space he was in, the black mm -hmm. Corvette he was driving. He got out of the car. He had a gun. He had the gun to his own head and oh, okay. was clearly in the middle of a, a, a pretty significant um, mental, mental yeah. health crisis. Um, there was some sort of screaming and shouting and back and forth. Some of the officers were trying to negotiate with him, mm -hmm. get him to put the gun down. He never pointed the gun at the police. Um, and one of the officers who was on scene uh, Brett Lempiris Trimbo was the officer's name, was clearly having a very different experience than oh. any of the other officers were. And ultimately what he did was he shot Mr. Ellis one time in the neck. Oh right after he shot him, he said, oh, fuck, was that me? Um, okay. And Mr. Ellis fell into the parking lot and um, he bled out. They didn't mm -hmm. call an ambulance for him straight away. He bled out and died. So that sounds like it could have been like a moment of panic on uh, on the officer's part. Is that? It, it certainly could have been. There okay. was uh, there was a civil lawsuit filed in mm -hmm. that case, and a number of the facts of the case came out through the course of that mm -hmm. litigation. There was a trial that took place um, in district court, a, a civil trial, um, in which the city ultimately was ordered to pay ten million dollars to the son of Mr. Ellis. Now, leaving him in the parking lot to bleed out, that seems like you, I, I mean, I can understand uh, maybe in a moment of panic an officer makes a mistake, but leaving him out there in the parking lot, that seems pretty, I don't know, um, peculiar? <laughs> it, it was one of a number of different pieces of that incident mm -hmm. that sort of pointed up the larger cultural problems okay. um, that had been festering at the Albuquerque Police Department um, for a number of years, and and the opinion of a number of pretty close observers okay. continues to fester. So what are those cultural problems? Um, that's a good question, exactly how to sort of point to what the culture is. It's a hard thing to define. Mm -hmm. The way that it's manifested, most particularly here, is through the use of unconstitutional excessive force by right. police officers. That's sort of the the manifestation of the okay. thing. The culture itself, um, is it's been characterized as sort of an us versus them mentality. Right. Like that's one sort of aspect of it or one mm -hmm. characteristic or hallmark of it. Another is that there 
um, is a relatively small number of officers, um, uh, many of them at the rank of detective, who are assigned to different units in the Special Investigations Division of the Police Department, mm -hmm. and also to the tactical teams, the SWAT team and whatnot, okay. who sort of have a real um, kind of warrior rather than guardian mentality. Okay. And then the culture, to talk about police culture as it exists in Albuquerque, it, it also describes um, a really lax or non-existent accountability structure within the police department. Mm -hmm. So you get these incidents where there's a problematic shooting or a problematic use of force or a given officer who's been involved in a number of these questionable incidents and they fail to discipline that person. Right. And they fail to take corrective action, right. to fire an officer um, when it seems like that might be warranted. Mm -hmm. That basically the leadership structure there either turned a blind eye to or actively participated in the successive force problem. That's okay. another thing that sort of, um, it, it, that's what the culture is. Right, it's a protective culture. It that's protects right. protects itself and then also promotes this us versus them mentality that leads to the kind of problems that we've been seeing. That's right. Over the last few years. Um, okay, so can we talk about what's what happened in 2014? Because that's certainly like fresh on my mind and I think, um, a lot of people, it, it seemed like things came to a head in terms of uh, public awareness and maybe protesting um, that happened after, in particular, the James Boyd shooting. Um, so could you tell us what happened there? In terms of the facts of the yeah, Boyd shooting? what's the facts of the Boyd shooting, first of all? Uh, James Boyd was, again, another person who was living with mental illness and had a number mm -hmm. of contacts uh, with the police through the years, some of them violent. Mm -hmm. um, he had some violent felonies in his past. And uh, he, he was a person who struggled in the shelters here, right. um, who had a really difficult time uh, living in some of those environments. And mm -hmm. he, he had taken to sort of camping in the foothills right. and so that's what he was doing he was camping up in the sandia foothills uh east of town um and there had been some complaints from some of the residents up there that this guy was out there he threatened mm -hmm. some dogs yeah. uh, with a knife the police were called and initially a, a, a small number of uniformed officers contacted mr boyd he had pulled his two camping knives out right. he was um you know those were sort of what he used to protect himself right. in sort of a <clears throat> uh, hostile environments that he lived sure. in. And initially the contact with the police was um, what I think a lot of progressive policing proponents mm -hmm. would say was the right way to handle things. Okay. That, that there was some negotiation taking place. It was pretty clear to those officers that Mr. Boyd was um, profoundly mentally ill. Right. I mean, he was making statements like he worked for the Department of Defense, mm -hmm. that he had $4 billion in his backpack, those kinds of things, right? Pretty clear that's somebody it's a lot who's... Of money. Right, yeah. it is. That, indeed, <laughs> it would have been, um, certainly to have in a backpack or a duffel right, bag. Right. And uh, the, the scene sort of progressed from there into a standoff between a larger number of uniformed officers and Mr. Boyd. Mm -hmm. And then some of these officers from the, the specialized units that I was just describing right. showed up and sort of took over the okay. scene. So you had a couple of SWAT officers, a right. couple of officers from a unit called the Repeat Offender Project, known as the ROPE Team. The ROPE um, Team. That's right, R-O-P. Um, they're not the ones who had the noose for the... That's right. That, that would be okay. the, the group of officers who used to, um, who for many, many years had as their symbol, their insignia, mm -hmm. a hangman's noose. Right. Um, and so it was a sort of a hodgepodge group of officers from these different 
tactical squads who took over from the uniformed officers Mm -hmm. um, and basically started into a kind of a a shouting match with Boyd. There was one officer in that group who was still somewhat trying to negotiate with him. Ultimately, it began to get dark. The officers came up with this kind of strange, haphazard plan to take him into custody. And what they did really from there was they escalated the situation. They threw a flashbang grenade at him, which is a... Um, an explosive device that makes a really, really, really right. loud concussive noise and a super bright flash. Uh-huh. And then they sent a dog in to get him. Mm-hmm. Um, they tried to shoot him with a taser shotgun. He reached in, pulled the knives out again. Mm-hmm. And as he was turning away from the officers, two of them fired shots, struck him in the back, and ultimately he died. So he had put the knives away when they fired the flashbang? Prior to that, he did not have the knives out. But after they threw the flashbang and sicked the dog on him, he pulled the knives back out of his pockets and was holding one in each hand. And it seems, you know, from an outside observer perspective, that those would be tactics designed to scare a person as much as possible, right? A shot, a flashbang grenade, and a a dog. I mean, it, it seems you're putting someone very much on the defensive at that point, right? Yes, although technically those are those two tactics are designed to do different things. The flashbang is designed to disorient someone. Okay. The dog is actually um, the purpose of the dog in a law enforcement situation like that is to take somebody into custody. Oh, okay. So that, those, were the, those are the actual purposes, but literally everything that could have gone wrong right. in that instance did. Okay. The dog did not grab Mr. Boyd's arm the way it was supposed to, and that's because it probably got struck with the prongs from the taser shotgun. The taser shotgun was a weapon that the officers should not have had in the first place. The weapon itself had been discontinued, and the ammunition that was fired from it had actually expired um, at the time, so the weapon didn't work predictably, (laughs) Um, and may have stunned the dog into not performing as it was supposed to. The dog's handler ran up to try to deal with the dog that wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. And at that point, um, the officer's version of events is that they shot Mr. Boyd because the dog handler was so close to him. And, he, and, oh. and they believed that that officer was in danger. And he had the knives That's out. Right. And so they're saying that he could have attacked, or they thought he was going to attack the officer who was coming up to That's help right. the canine. That's right. Okay. So they shot him, and, um, and he died. Yes. Right. And uh, that seems that was something that really kind of solidified some of the controversies in the public sphere. Is that fair to say? Or I think what it did was it put image mm-hmm. to, um, to, to some of the, the concerns that had been lingering and right. boiling among people for a long time here. And one of the things it really did when the video was released and the public and the news media had a chance to see the video, mm-hmm. is it showed the difference between the version of events that law enforcement described okay. and what actually took place. So what are those differences? Um, the way that the police had initially characterized what happened is that Boyd was attacking the officers with these okay. knives, and that's why they shot him. Right. But then when we saw the video, of course, that... That's not what appeared to be taking place at all. So that was the primary difference. And again, it's prior to that, we had not, in this city at least, seen one of these on video. Mm There have been any number of instances where their version of events um, didn't stand up to scrutiny, either through investigative reporting that I was doing Mm -hmm. or through the course of civil litigation. 
that a number of the civil rights lawyers in town had engaged in, but it had never been so visceral. Um, right. Seeing it on video, I think, is really what changed things. Yeah, that is a huge difference to, to be able to, you know, if you read something and you read different accounts of the events versus actually watching the YouTube video or whatever for yourself. And I remember that that was something that was immediately extremely accessible. That's right. The other thing I got to say that really pissed people off, mm -hmm. um, the day that the video was released, <clears throat> the police had a, a news conference and they right. showed the video at the news conference for the first time. And the police chief, Gordon Eden, who was two months on the job at that mm -hmm. time, was asked during the press conference if he thought the shooting was justified. And he said, yes, okay. that, that he thought it had. So that was another element of this that, right. that really, really, really just... Um, kind of tore open a number of wounds and scabs that I mm -hmm. think a lot of people in this city had had for a long time. And also maybe showed a disconnect between the official line and what the video that's literally playing right behind him or whatever that's playing at the at the press conference. I think that would be the kind reading would be to say <laughs> that, that, that it that it um, exposed a disconnect. Uh -huh. I think the way people really read that was that it was evidence of a police culture that had right. really um, sort of gone off the rails here. And so it seemed, it was, uh, was mainly interested in protecting itself and not actually looking at the facts. Correct. Okay. So when does the Department of Justice get involved? The Department of Justice began its initial inquiry into mm -hmm. APD in 2011. Okay, so this um, is before James Boyd. Long before. Right. Uh, in fact, the Boyd shooting was not one of the shootings the Justice Department investigated. Okay. Um, so they began an initial inquiry. I want to say it was in August of 11. Um, they made the announcement that they were officially conducting what's called a pattern and practice investigation of APD okay. the following year in 2012. Um, and that investigation lasted for about 16 months, I believe. Mm -hmm. The findings letter, the letter announcing the conclusions of that investigation, came out in April of 2014, almost a month to the day after the Boyd shooting. Okay. And what did they find? They've, uh, to use sort of government speak, mm -hmm. DOJ speak, they found a pattern and practice of city police officers violating the civil rights of citizens, mm -hmm. specifically through the use of force. Um, and they identified seven areas that contributed to that pattern in practice. And those things would include things like um, a non-existent or blind eye culture among the mm -hmm. leadership there, okay. um, specialized units that were operating completely and totally unchecked and out of control, mm -hmm. a very deeply broken and frankly fucked up um, citizen oversight mechanism okay. that just didn't work at all, right. um, and a few other things. That's what the Justice Department found. Okay, so let's talk about the the citizen oversight mechanism mm -hmm. um, because I believe that was some that's a something that came about since the '90s, right? That's a fairly recent uh, addition to yes, the, the the Police Oversight Commission, mm -hmm. um, which was kind of our first stab at that. Here mm -hmm. was a creature that was born of something called the Walker Luna Report. Okay. which was produced in 1997. Mm -hmm. um, and if you were to read that report, you would think that it had been written in 2014. Okay. So um, the same sorts of issues. Very, very many of the same sorts okay. of issues, in particular with, particularly with things like the SWAT team, entities right. like the SWAT team with an APD. Um, after that, they created the Police Oversight Commission mm -hmm. and what was known as the Independent Review Officer. Okay. 
early incarnations of that had some success. Mm -hmm. um, you had some people who were appointed to that commission who took police accountability very seriously. And there, there was a guy who um, had that job as independent review officer named Jay Rowland who took the job of police mm -hmm. accountability very seriously. They were pretty quickly dispatched of. Okay. Um, and, and from there, that, that entity began to decay over mm -hmm. the course of a number of years and really had, had become um, a, a rubber stamp mechanism right. for things like excessive force. And the Justice Department even took occasion in the report of findings to point out that the person who was working as independent review officer by then, mm -hmm. a woman named Robin Hammer, um, in fact was closer to the police than she was to the citizens. Okay. So that's, that's sort of what happened in terms right. of how that thing decayed and broke. And what is the theory behind the citizens um, oversight group? Like what's, what's the, what are they supposed to do? They are supposed to review citizen complaints against the police mm -hmm. and make determinations as to whether there's any validity to those complaints okay. um, and also to review um, all police shooting cases. Right. And sort of the, the, the notion behind that, the idea behind that, is that the, the police, like the rest of the government, work for the people. Right. Um, and so the idea is to get an independent body mm -hmm. that is not part of the police structure and hierarchy and mm -hmm. city bureaucracy that's that's an independent voice of the people set of eyes on the the dealings and goings on within the police department so as of the uh, the DOJ's findings this organization had been watered down to the point of not really being able to do anything is that what I understand I understand it correctly that is correct I okay. would say that it had atrophied to the point of okay. um, having become non-functional in fact mm -hmm. a couple of a couple of people who were appointed to the board resigned in disgust mm -hmm. uh, not long before the doj findings letter came out basically saying we're not we're not going to participate in this anymore it's a farce mm -hmm. it's an absolute and complete farce so given that these have been issues that have been plaguing the the uh, police department for literally decades at this point how is it that things corrective measures that were in place were subverted or undermined to the point that they weren't able to do anything about, you know, this continuing culture of uh, um, self-protectionism and, and that sort of thing. It really comes from city and police administration and leadership. Mm -hmm. um, a, a lot of folks will tell you that, for example, when Jim Baca was mayor, mm -hmm. um, he made some attempts. He took the Walker Luna report, which was produced under Mayor Chavez's first term. Mm -hmm. um, when when Baca came in. Uh, he took that seriously. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things he tried to do was bring in an outsider as chief, a guy named Jerry Galvin he brought okay. in and, and appointed to be the chief at APD. And uh, the police department rejected Galvin like a bad liver transplant. Okay. <laughs> um, and so he had to go bye-bye. Right. Uh, and, and so it, in terms of the way things are allowed to go on and allowed to fester, um, that's really about the leadership structure. Right. And, uh, you know, certainly... Um, my own reporting has borne out through all of these years that certainly the two mayors who came after Baca, uh, Mayor Chavez and then Mayor Barry, mm -hmm. um, bear pretty substantial and significant responsibility for what took place here. Okay. How, how so? What do, you, uh, what do you see as their role in, in this? Well, they hire and fire the police chief. Mm -hmm. um, the police chief who they brought in, who Mayor Chavez brought in on the back end of a massive scandal in the evidence room. At APD is a guy named Ray Schultz, mm -hmm. um, and in fact, 
Schultz had been a deputy chief at APD um, who oversaw the evidence room. Right. Um, and he left and went to Scottsdale for a year and a half to be a deputy chief there. The scandal blew up. Um, they brought Schultz back in to become the chief. He was appointed chief in 2005. Um, and, and Barry kept him when Barry right. was elected mayor in 2009. And uh, Schultz was a guy who kind of very much believed in that you know, sort of blue coat of silence. Right. Um, he was really allergic and averse to any sort of outside criticism whatsoever, whether that be from the press, from the police oversight uh, commission, the independent review officer, whomever. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in terms of what their role was in allowing these things to fester, they didn't ever step in and say, hey, folks whose family members were killed by the police in questionable circumstances or hey ma'am who's made a complaint against an officer who's had 17 citizen complaints this year we take your concerns seriously we believe you we are going to get to the bottom of what happened and hold accountable those who are responsible for these violations okay. that just didn't happen is it just a hope that things would sort of fade away and, and people would forget and they would just be able to continue doing as they do I think that's a fair question um, mm -hmm. And again, I think that might be the kind reading. Okay. I think there's another reading of this that that um, maybe looks at this as as, as an ideological issue with mm -hmm. leadership in the city. I mean, Albuquerque is a, a, an imperfect place. Mm -hmm. sure. um, it's a it's a violent town. <clears throat> Excuse me. We are a couple of hundred miles from the border. Mm -hmm. We sit right on the intersection of two major drug and crime thoroughfares through the right. country, I-25 and I-40. Um, there is systemic and generational poverty here. Mm -hmm. There's enough dope in this town to stun a team of velociraptors. Okay. Um, and and it's, it, it's, a, it's a place um, that, that requires policing you know there, right. there's there's crime here and there's there, a real there, there are real problems that's right and, and in terms of that sort of us versus them are mm. the powerful really just in service of things like the business community's interests and those sorts of things I right. think those are legitimate questions um, and 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 questions that are at least partially answered through the the course of my reporting and whatnot mm. I mean I think they wanted to have um, a kicking ass police department right. here. Tough on crime. Right? That's right. That's what everybody wants, you know. <laughs> well, certainly since the 90s or the, or yeah. the 80s. I mean, and then, then we could have a long conversation mm -hmm. about drug war enforcement here, too. Right. Something I've been writing about quite a bit recently, in fact. Um, so, yeah, in terms of why, why did they have the police force they had here, I think it's the police force they wanted. Okay. Well, that's pretty, uh, pretty clear. Um, okay, so after the uh, Department of Justice findings, what happened next with the uh, the federal level? Um, did they did they release recommendations or? They're not recommendations. So okay. the way that process works, um, we got. Well, I'll, I'll give you just a little context on what that process is. Okay. Uh, in 1994, Bill Clinton signed um, this massive omnibus crime bill. Uh, that, and, and one of the things that was part of that crime bill was a response to the Rodney King incident out in L.A. Mm -hmm. It gave the Justice Department the authority to come in and conduct these massive, sweeping, civil investigations of right. police departments that looked for 
patterns and practices of constitutional violations. Mm -hmm. um, it's a mechanism that was used a, a, a decent bit under Clinton, almost none under, uh, under Bush. Mm -hmm. um, and Obama has used the, that power mm -hmm. that's granted to the Justice Department. Um, there have been more than 20 of these investigations okay. during the seven and a half years Obama's been the president. So it allows them to come in and conduct these huge investigations. They then report their findings, and the city has a couple of options from there. Mm -hmm. uh, the city can say, we totally disagree with your findings. We're not going to do any of this. And at okay. that point, what happens is the Justice Department sues the city in federal court and makes them implement those reforms. Okay. In Albuquerque, uh, the city negotiated with the DOJ, and the two parties came up with a settlement agreement, which okay. settled the claims in the findings letter. So mm -hmm. it's a couple of hundred points um, that basically say, this is the shit that we found that was wrong with your police department. These are the few hundred things you need to do to fix it. Okay. The city signed that document, and it's now sort of under the purview of a federal judge okay. who oversees the reform effort, and his eyes and ears on the ground uh, it is what's called the federal monitor. Right. The, the guy who has that contract here in Albuquerque is a fellow by the name of James Ginger. James Ginger. Um, okay. So that's the way that mechanism works. Mm -hmm. And just a little tiny bit more context, the reason that they they put that in the crime bill in 94 is because previously the Justice Department did not have the authority or the, the, the power or the hammer to impact police culture. Okay. You go back to sort of Serpico era NYPD right. stuff, you get these police departments that are totally and completely off the rails. Right. The feds come in and indict a handful of cops who were into dirty shit or murdering mm -hmm. citizens or whatever it happened to be. Those guys go to trial, they either go to prison or they don't, but that doesn't do anything to impact the broader right. culture of a police department. So the idea with uh -huh. these civil investigations is to uh, remedy those bad cultures. Basically, to fix the department instead of prosecute individuals. That's right. Okay. Which leaves a lot of people feeling cold, by the way. Why is that, do you think? Because they feel like this is no skin off anybody's back. Mm. These are really expensive reforms, mm -hmm. but it's not the mayor's money. Right. It's okay. my money. Yeah. It's your money. Sure. It's the taxpayer's money that it's costing to implement these reforms. And through that process, um, none of the individual officers who are responsible for these um, unconstitutional shootings, unconstitutional uses of force are held accountable. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of, it's a little bit of a two-edged sword, right? It's yeah. a, a lot of the, for example, the, the, the members of, of some of the people's families who've been shot and killed by the police um, feel sort of betrayed mm -hmm. by, by that DOJ process. Like, well, great, you came in and said that the shooting of my kid should never have happened, and right. um, it was awful, but you didn't do anything to the officer. Okay. So it's a, it's a delicate, delicate balance. Does that now fall under the, uh, the state's uh, purview to, to do any prosecution that might result from these? Like, I, I know that um, the officers who, uh, who killed uh, James Boyd were indicted, on some level, is that the state level then? Yes, okay. that's, that, that's a prosecution that's taking place in state court. Okay. And frankly, prosecution of a police officer for yep. an on-duty shooting in this country mm -hmm. is incredibly difficult. Right. And that's because of a couple of seminal Supreme Court cases that sort of lay out the ground rules for police use of force. Mm -hmm. It's even more difficult to prosecute them in federal court. Oh, really? Um, yeah, okay. to sort of put it in layman's terms, the standard at the federal level is pretty much first-degree murder or nothing. Right, okay. They're just not going to touch it otherwise, unless it's really brazen. Yeah, you bet. Uh, like the last successful 
federal uh, prosecution of an on-duty police shooting was the Danziger Bridge incident in New Orleans after Katrina. Oh, okay, yeah, mm -hmm. so quite a... And quite that, a while back, well, and that fell apart yeah. after, after the convictions of those officers because the oh. prosecutors were caught posting nasty shit about the cops on the website Jeez. of the New Orleans <laughs> Times. Anyway, that's another story. Right. So, um, so then, um, presumably, APD and the city are are uh, taking steps to implement reforms now. Is that ostensibly yes? Okay. So, where does that stand? Um, well, uh, so so the, the the most sort of empirical and public measuring stick we have for that are the reports of Dr. Ginger. Okay. Um, so he's he has now issued three reports mm -hmm. that sort of look at how the reform effort is going. He has pointed to a number of massive problems with mm -hmm. the implementation of the reforms here, right. um, including the policy writing process. Mm -hmm. So the the reform takes place on a number of levels. The, the sort of first step was to get some policies in place that made sense and followed the United States Constitution. Okay. Part of the Justice Department's findings letter basically said, um, you guys wouldn't know constitutional policing okay. if it walked up and smacked you in the face with a wet piece of salmon. Even so, you, <laughs> so you need to implement some policies that, right. that enable constitutional policing. Then you need to train your officers mm -hmm. on those new policies. They couldn't get the policies written. Okay. So their policy making process was totally disjointed, right. all over the board, and the city attorney and the assistant police chief were lying in public meetings about why they couldn't get the, the policies written correctly okay. and on time. So that was one massive criticism, uh, not criticism, one f massive finding of right. the federal monitor. The most recent monitor's report um, it was was uh, took a pretty deep dive into that accountability system. Mm -hmm. That do are you correctly investigating right. uses of force? And the answer to that question, at least as it stands now, is no. Okay, they're not. Just not at all. That's right. Okay. They, they, he has the monitor has also pointed to areas that that do seem to be improving. The SWAT team, for example, mm -hmm. uh, a huge number of that big spike in shootings between 2009 and 2014. Um, were done by SWAT officers. Right. That's happening a lot less frequently now. So, so they have, there are some hopeful signs, in other words. There are. It seems like yes. there is some progress being made. Yes. Um, right now, the issues are writing these policies. Um, so you said that they were they were lying about what was taking them so long? What, That's what right. Were the, what was the nature of the lies? The lies were uh, the city attorney, Jessica Hernandez, and the assistant chief, Bob Huntsman, uh, appeared at a couple of public meetings and were asked by city councilors and others, why is it taking so long? Why are mm. we reading the, the, the federal monitor's report saying you can't get these policies written? What they said was, um, we are not allowed to look at model policies from other departments around the country. Oh, okay. So we're having to reinvent the wheel on all this shit. Hmm. As it turns out, that that is a, a I'm going to use the word lie. It was a straight okay. up lie. In right. fact, um, I, I've done some reporting um, in which I was able to obtain some documents related to the, the evolution of the new use of force mm -hmm. policy that made clear as they were drafting it that they were using policies okay. from other departments around the country. So they were definitely looking at other policies, but they were... And using them as guides. Just In as fact, a, they'd uh, been instructed by the Justice Department to use model policies from around the country as guides. This just a my dog ate my homework kind of moment on their, their parts? Or I, I just don't really understand why they would 
Again, that would be the kind reading. The <laughs> dog ate my I'm a kind person. I, I, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> sure I could say uh, exactly why it is they felt like they needed okay. to say that, other than they felt like they needed an excuse for why they weren't getting these policies done on time. There is there, there is a draft of um, of the policy now. The, the uh, use of force policy, policy is in place now. Oh, it's in not place. just a draft. Okay. It is in place, and they are training officers on it uh, at the police academy as we speak. There are problems with that policy too. Okay. Um, what are the What are the differences in uh, between that and the previous use of force policies? Are there any big ones? Or, uh... There are. There is, uh, there's a lot of language that the police reform community um, has sort of proffered as best practices around the country that exists in the, in the policy. Okay. It instructs the officers on constitutional case law. It emphasizes de-escalation, okay. which is sort of a trope in law enforcement that mm -hmm really follows common sense. You're gonna show up on the scene of a guy who's in the middle of a mental health crisis, better to try talking to him first right. rather than, pardon me, threatening him with a taser. Right. Um, so there, that, that, um, that idea, that concept is infused into the new use of force policy, okay. whereas it really wasn't before. There are some problems in the new policy too. I wrote a story a couple of months ago um, that, that basically reported that the new incarnation of mm -hmm. the citizen board which by right. the terms of the settlement agreement is to be involved in the crafting of new policies. They'd been completely shut out oh, of, really? the, of the drafting of the, of the new use of force policy. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, this concept of feasibility crept into that policy. Feasibility. Other, yes. In other words, they had, they had sprinkled the phrase when feasible or if feasible throughout the policy. Mm -hmm. which a lot of the people I interviewed, including some of the members of the, of the police oversight board here, they felt like that was an escape clause. Like okay. in other words, you are to de-escalate this situation if feasible. If feasible. So if you think right. about the way that softens the policy mm -hmm. and um, muddies that accountability mechanism. So when an officer, for example, after a use of force incident is sitting in an internal affairs interview, which is going to determine whether or not he or she is disciplined, um, all that officer has to do is say, hey, I'm really familiar with the policy. It wasn't feasible okay. for and me. It's to, just so. a subjective That's right. sort of word. Right? Which really so. has sort of no meaning in the law enforcement context, uh, really anywhere else in the country. Right. Okay. So that's the policy that's in place now. All right. And that's a policy that was approved by the monitor. Okay. So that was approved by Dr. Ginger. That's right. All right. Um, despite the fact that there are some problems with it, like the feasibility the use of the, the words feasible throughout. Yes. Um, okay, so what about the uh, where, the citizens, uh, is, what is it called now? I, I get confused. It is called the Police Oversight Board. Okay, the Police Oversight Board. That basically replaces the Police Oversight Commission. Okay. They did away with what was called the Independent Review Officer and replaced that with the citizen, the CPOA, the Citizens Police... Uh, Oversight Agency, Citizens okay. Police Oversight Agency, and there's a guy who oversees that. It has an executive director. He is mm -hmm. basically the investigatory arm, so mm -hmm. he investigates the citizen complaints and the police shootings and presents findings to the board. Okay. The board then makes determinations on whether the officer followed policy, then makes recommendations to the chief mm -hmm. for discipline. Um, the chief doesn't have to listen, still, uh, okay. right? But he does, which is new to the new oh. version of this, if he disagrees with those recommendations and findings, he has to respond in writing as to why. Okay, he can't just straight out ignore it. He has to actually respond. That's right. Okay, um, but they aren't 
including this organization in their policy writing process. That's right. So, so how does that work? Do they they just write write the letter every time? They, they write strongly worded letters to the chief, <laughs> which then get leaked to me, and then I write stories about them. Okay. I mean, that's that's sort of that's their recourse. They seem really really frustrated at this. So point. they're they've uh, like restored their independence, but they don't have any kind of teeth to. Uh, that's right. And that's an ongoing debate around the country in terms of citizen oversight of the police. How much teeth can you really give them? Mm -hmm. Should they have final authority or say over discipline for an officer or termination for an officer? That's a... um, That conversation is sort of sitting on the head of a pin right now around the country. So what happens if uh, the federal government uh, shifts radically over the next, say, year or so? Will the... um, Department of Justice no longer have an interest in monitoring APD's use of force policies and so forth? Uh, That's a fair question. I think what you're really asking is what happens to the DOJ reforms that are underway at APD mm -hmm. if Donald Trump is elected president? Yeah. Um, It's a fair question, but look, the the ball is rolling now. And look, a lot of the a lot of the folks who are involved on the ground from mm-hmm. Maine Justice and D.C. on this, they're career prosecutors. Okay. Right? These are, pe- these are career folks in the Civil right. Rights Division um, who are, some of them in particular, I can think of a couple of these people in particular, who are really invested in the outcome mm-hmm. in Albuquerque and who worked really hard um, during the course of the investigation mm-hmm. that took place here. More broadly, what will the Justice Department's interest be in the question of policing in America under a President Trump? Right. Um, I shudder. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, it seems to me that what we're looking at right now, um, as you say, is a ball that's rolling in the right direction, but maybe slower than you know we'd like to see. I think it's tough to say. I, I think the jury is very much out on whether this is really going to make lasting mm-hmm. change here. Okay. I think that um, based on everything that, that, that has come as a result of my own reporting, not just on mm-hmm. Albuquerque, but on this process as it takes place in other cities as well, um, it's, it's, a, it's a good framework. Mm-hmm. Um, it is court enforceable, and certainly there is no politician who wants to be slapped in federal court for mm-hmm. not complying with um, p- police reform mandates or any of those kinds of things. But really what it takes to fix these things through this process is a real commitment from the leadership of the particular city where this right. is taking place. Okay. And do you see that commitment here? I mean, do you think that there's enough of a commitment in Albuquerque? Mm, I don't know. There's a lot missing. Okay. There has never been, for example, a public apology. Right from the administration of this city for mm-hmm. what took place here. Okay. There has never been a set of specific acknowledgments even of what took place here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, their line generally is this. We, we received the findings letter from the Justice Department and we took it very seriously and we jumped right in there and started trying to implement these reforms. Typically when the mayor or the chief is asked the logical follow-up questions, did you agree with Mm -hmm. the findings letter? You don't get an answer to that question. So it is an open question in my mind Mm -hmm. whether the the leadership of the city and the leadership of the police department believe that there was ever really a serious problem. I think they believe that 
it would have been seriously politically damaging mm -hmm. had they decided to fight the Justice Department on this process. Um, I also understand that that's a tightrope for a city to, to walk. Sure. But if you look at, I did a story, for example, when I was at KRQE. Mm -hmm. If you look at, uh, and I did this story with my colleague, Matt Grubbs, it's one of my favorite stories we did while I was there. You look at the difference between their public rhetoric mm -hmm. um, about this process, which is, um, we're not looking back, we're not really all that interested in how we got here, we're moving forward, it's a time for healing, and damn it, we're gonna implement these reforms. And then you look at the way their attorneys argue in court right. in individual cases involving mm -hmm. allegations of excessive force. The city's attorneys would go into court and say, um, in, in a couple of instances in particular, the Justice Department report was crap. Right, okay. Total wow. and complete crap. We don't mm -hmm. agree with any of that. No, we do not think it should be admitted as evidence in this particular case. Interesting. So there's a real divide and disconnect um, right. that exists there. So does the current administration have that real commitment, not just to being able to cross the T's and dot the I's of what's in that settlement agreement right. to say we did it? Do they have a, a level of commitment beyond that? Mm -hmm. I can't say that I've seen that. At okay. the same time, um, it's been a long time since I've been allowed to interview the mayor or the police chief. Sure. They don't talk to me much anymore. Um, so I, 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 don't, I don't have a great sense for that, but I, mm -hmm. I can say that it, um, there, I think that's a really fair question in terms mm -hmm. of what their level of, of real legitimate commitment to this process they have. And I mean, one way to really think about that simply is can you fix a problem that you don't admit you have? Mm, right. So that's twelve step stuff, right there. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Well, do you have any uh, kind of final thoughts or anything that I should um, anything that I should ask you about that we haven't covered? Well, I mean, the, there is a galaxy of I things know. that we have not covered. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I I'll say this. I I do. I think that the policing question and the policing problems that exist in Albuquerque, mm -hmm. um, while they bear a number of similarities to the things we're seeing elsewhere in the country, right. there are also some pretty key differences. Okay. It, it is not the white officer shoots black guy right. um, uh, dynamic that you see here. And, mm -hmm. I, and I, I will say also that, and from a journalist perspective and someone who's written about these issues here for a very long time, Albuquerque is almost, well, in some ways, I feel like it is a, um, a better lens through which to examine some of the problems with things like the training of officers, okay. who they hire, right. um, those internal accountability mechanisms mm -hmm. Because uh, the, the issue here, um, w when, when race is involved, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it tends to really dominate the conversation sure. and sure. drown out some of the other parts of the conversation. That has not so much been the case here. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that there, that there aren't um, segments of the population in Albuquerque that have been disproportionately impacted mm -hmm. by these problems with excessive force, people who are living with mental illness and mm -hmm. drug addiction, for example. Right. Um, 
but it, it I don't know if that made sense. But it, no, I in, think it in, does. In some ways, it's a it's a it's a little clearer yeah. prism through which to kind of look at some of these issues with mm-hmm. policing and the Constitution and uh, the way power, government, state mm. power interacts with the citizens, those kinds of things. So because we're not seeing it uh, disproportionately affecting people of one race here. Right. I mean, and uh, it's, it's an interesting thing, right? Yeah. Like you look at the demographics of the people who've been shot or had excessive force used against them by APD. Um, demographically, in a general way of speaking, it looks like Albuquerque. Okay. And then when you look at the demographics of the officers who are using excessive force and the mm-hmm. broader demographics of APD, it looks like Albuquerque. Right. This isn't Ferguson where you've got an overwhelmingly black population um, and an overwhelmingly white police force. Right. Right. It's right. Th- that, that's not the dynamic in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. So it's... I mean, I, I think you could probably argue, I mean, would you say that, that our police force maybe faces a lot of the same kind of problems that other police forces across the country are, but not so much this racial element or? Uh, yeah, I think that's true. Okay. Um, and and maybe, it's, maybe that's an oversimplified way to say it. It's not so much that they don't face a racial element mm-hmm. per se. It's that it's not, um, it's, not a, it's, it's not a black and white issue. Right. Um, okay. and, and I mean that in both ways. I mean right. that in describing people's race and also, uh, you know, a real kind of clear-cut battle lines type of a thing. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking some time to chat with me. Cool. Thanks for having me. So that was our friend Jeff Proctor, who has an encyclopedic knowledge of that what's been going on with the APD. smart. I really enjoyed listening to that. Yeah. What a smart dude. I really... You know, it's just so nice to hear people who know something about something talk about it. You know, that's, like that's the thing. You I, know? I find it refreshing. It's like drinking water. I have a lot of like gut level reactions to things that I see yeah. in the news, and yeah. somebody who's just literally my kids are in the um, in the next room. Can you hit them with like a tranquilizer dart? Or <laughs> no, something? I can't, Mike. That's <laughs> not allowed. That's illegal and, <laughs> and immoral. <laughs> anyway, well, turn it off and do it. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> What was I saying? Oh, you know, it's it's. I feel like a lot of the time, you know, when you watch the news as a, as a person who's living a life that's not spending every second learning everything about a certain it's issue. True, because life. You're right? functioning on a gut yeah. level, yeah. and it's like, well, you know, this police shooting was mm-hmm. was clearly wrong, and yeah. I, but I but still, you have a lot of complicated feelings. So it's you you, you react a lot to the news on a mm-hmm. gut level. And it's like you don't get the benefit of context, even if you've been living in a place and you follow these stories. It's true. Just keeping all that information in your mind is is impossible. It takes work. Unless it's your job. Emotional work too. And for Jeff Proctor, that's his job. So we can call him in here and we can talk to him, and he knows everything there there is to it. And I'm glad Marisa DeMarco's out there, and I'm glad Trip Jennings is out there, and I'm glad all these people that think about this stuff full time are out there. Yeah. You know, it's important. It is important. You know, glad. and I like that he's willing Carolyn to talk Carlson's about the fact up. that there's yeah, Carolyn Carlson's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, he, I like that he's willing to talk about the fact that yes, we live in a state that's you know close to the border yeah. that we've got these big intersections of potential drug trafficking. Yes. We have violent crime. Yes. yes. We obviously need a functional de- police department. Yeah. Well. But we need to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. You don't agree? <laughs> well, sometimes I wonder. You know, I mean, the first police departments were essentially uh, escaped slave patrols. 
And so mm. sometimes I think about that stuff, and I think about the very basic elements of our police departments, like that they're all armed, and how many European police departments aren't and seem yeah. to function quite fine without it, you know? But they still have a police department. I mean, sure. I think it's necessary for functioning. When you get enough people society. together, you've got to have something to preserve, you know? So if if you want to elevate justice beyond vengeance. Levels of peace, yeah. But I, I just... You know, sometimes I wonder, giving a whole class of people this additional power over everybody else, this weaponry, man, I've well, been pulled over before. Well, it seriously comes with problems, right? It really does. It, I, but I think those problems are deeply built into, into it. You know, I mean, there was a very interesting Rolling Stone article that I would encourage people to look up lately on alternatives to police departments. Mm. You know, everything from community watch lists oh, okay. to, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's worth reading anyway. What it, is it the, uh, the article called? I think it's called... Um, Five Ideas for a Police-Free World, or something, okay. something like that. It's worth looking up. I, um, maybe we can put a link in the show notes at some point. But, but Certainly uh, you need some mechanism to stop people from doing yeah. no, w- I think that's wickedness, true. right? Yeah, I think that's true. But I think also, you know, pe- we, we're, so, we're so quick to hear these arguments about, like, most police are great. But the problem is a really deeply systemic problem, you well, know? It's I, not just a few bad apples. And I think that's yeah. what's um, interesting about what uh, what Jeff Proctor was talking about about this Clinton initiative, Bill Clinton initiative to have the Department of Justice be able to suggest, you yeah. know, make findings and so forth. He was saying that the one of the problems with it is that it gets away from the few bad apples mm. um, uh, idea, in that people feel okay, this guy this police officer shot mm. someone and he shouldn't have, shouldn't he be prosecuted right. and punished? Right. And instead what the Clinton era stuff does is it looks at the department as a whole. Yeah. What about the department as a whole yeah. led to this and is there a way to correct it? Yeah. And I think that's, that's an interesting aspect of it because it's, we are actually getting away from the bad apples yeah. theory. Yeah. You know, well, we're going to lose some listeners with this episode, I think. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's, this, it's a possible. very political topic, even though it's, it's you know, it's so relevant to our lives, man. It affects us here. I, one of my, I loved this guy. In, in high school, he was one of my favorite people in a bunch of classes. I had this guy, Jacob Michelin, mm-hmm. shot down by APD for running away when he was stopped. He probably had some weed in his pocket or some drugs yeah. or something. I mean, he, he, he had something that was objectionable and that he was afraid of getting caught with, and he ran... You know, the police reports later said he had parts of a gun in his pocket. I don't know how That's parts insane. of a gun are yeah. a threat unless they're just a scary-looking lump there at, 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 in his pocket or something. But, you know, I, you know, I love that guy. He was super cool. He, was, he always right. wore Danzig T-shirts and was hilarious. And I'm pretty sure he was on acid most of the time he was in <laughs> class. He was a troubled dude. He was weird. But he was nice. He was friendly. He was fun. And we got a kick out of each other, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and he was a part of my high school experience throughout it. And he was chased down by APD and he was gunned down. And then all these other people that we've never met and that were probably really messed up individuals, like James Boyd. Like James, James Boyd. Boyd was a troubled person. And we've all seen yeah. homeless people. He tried like to broke into, break into Holloman Air Force Base. Sure. There's no question that James the guy Boyd was, was messed up in the head. No question. But and maybe what? he would have used the knives, but come on. Like. I hear a description of a frightened old man. I have yeah. been to that site. I have watched that video at that site. If you, if you go back through the archives of the Dead Things podcast, I'm interviewed at the James Boyd site talking about James Boyd oh. during one of the older episodes. I did not know that. Yeah, they did a special like roundup where it was like, who were the most two, the two most significant deaths for you this year? And I did, in 2014, I did Philip Seymour Hoffman and James mm. Boyd. Those, oh. those were very oh. significant deaths to me. Um, I love Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think he's one of the great actors of our time. 
uh, maybe of all time. And yeah, uh, and James Boyd, you know, like that was so sad to me, man, because I've seen those people. And you know what? I think all of us could be that person. Oh, we, yeah. What, what would well, it take to get a, a head injury? You get hit by a, a, you know, a steel beam that some construction worker okay. is swinging around your head. You get in a car crash. You get something. All of a sudden, you're just not the same as you used Slightly to be. Slightly tweaked genes yeah. when you're born. Slightly tweaked. Yeah, exactly. Nutritional yeah. deficiencies that lead to... Yeah. I mean, Next thing you know, you're on the streets. I knew a guy yeah. growing up in high school. I think his last name was Stang. Um... And he had gotten in a car wreck, and he was like a child. He was so yeah. simplified from that process. His wife had to show uh, pictures of their children before they got home from school and remind him who they were. Mm. This was some guy who had like been in positions of local leadership before that. He had, he had, you know, he had. It, it could happen to any of us. We all like, you know. I'm not a, a religious person or a, a deist, but when I hear that phrase, there before the grace of God go I, I think, like, yeah, there before the grace of anything go all of us, you know? Yeah. Like, we, it's, it's sheer luck. It's sheer luck or happenstance or whatever you want to call it that, that those of us that are okay and cool yeah. um, and okay with functioning in, the, in society the way it is are the way that, w- that we are. No victor believes in chance. Best Nietzsche quote ever. And the truest thing, we got to remember that, man. And most of you these know? people that we're talking about, Ellis, Boyd, yeah. Mary Hawks, mm-hmm. um, these are people who had yeah. something yes. serious that they're struggling it's against. It's so true. They're not Machiavellian. No, like, they're just mwahaha. sad people yeah. struggling. I met Mary Hawks a couple times too. She Seriously? Would, she would come to Iron House shows, oh, and uh, Iron House was a, a venue on on Iron Street that used to play these wonderful shows, and they had a bonfire pit out back. And she was just this sad teenager that would show up there sometimes, yeah. and um, you know, it's it's you know, she was sleeping in cars to get warm. Yeah, you know, that's it. You know, yeah, yeah all, all of this. And maybe set. she could have made. Some choices that were better, but you know, she certainly didn't deserve to be like killed. You know, to know all is to understand. And we're talking all, about something Tolstoy that we said. haven't like described. Yeah, yeah. But, um, the situation. But you can look L- up Mary Hawks. Yeah, you look up that story. She was a 19-year-old woman who had been caught for car thievery, but she was just stealing cars to sleep in them because it was cold. It was winter. Yeah. It was freezing. You know, like that's it. The well. End. So we have a second piece today by Mike. Hello, I'm um, Mike. And this is kind of a more, I feel like a more personal take Oh yeah. on the situation. So do you want to set us up for that? Yes. Okay, here we go. Well, it was 2014. The world was about to end. No. No, okay, not that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's well, not what happened, of, Mike. In the big <laughs> it was 2014. James Boyd had just been shot, and Albuquerque was mad. We were yeah. pissed off. We were protesting all the time. There was good stuff going on. There were there were uh, apologists for the police state who were out in the streets and uh, misrepresenting the protesters' actions and calling them riots and things like that. Right. Lines were being drawn in the sand, and people were just really saying, what kind of a community do we want? Do we want mm-hmm. a safe community where we can be who we are and exist in, in harmony together? Or do we want to have to like be fearing a militarized police force all the time. It's really, it, it, it was great. I really felt such good things from the community at the time, even though things were so heightened, Yeah, you know? Right. So I wrote this piece. Strangely, it's about, in particular, a night of protesting in April of 2014. I believe it was late April. And, uh, 
you know, soon it, after the Boyd, soon after the Boyd stuff, it, people were going out all the time. There were protests all the time, and the police response was inordinate and, in my opinion, ridiculous. It mm. was, you know, oh, twenty hippie protesters, student protesters, totally total peaceniks for the most part, met with riot squads and tear yeah. gas and shields and machine guns and all this ridiculous I gotta say, stuff. That is something that I feel like we didn't see prior to two thousand one, prior new. to nine eleven. It's new. It's new. I mean, there was some of that. I remember protesting the Iraq War and stuff early on, and uh, and seeing some of that. But it, but yeah. it's different now. It's it's morphed into something dark. And, and I mean, it was dark before. But okay. but uh, you know, it's what it's it's just sad. You know, I mean, like protest is one of the only voices that we have as a people to gather in the streets and meet. And when we see all of a sudden that the police that are allegedly about serving and protecting, I mean, it's on the side of think, some of their cars. I feel like it's something that has been. Absolutely necessary for the betterment of society as a whole. Oh, we, we have, have to speak up. We Things have change had, when we speak up. I mean, we, yeah, exactly. So let's. We uh, have the power. Let us uh, transport ourselves back. Uh, this article appeared in the April second or April third alibi uh, from 2014. It's a little bit dated, but not dated enough. APD ad absurdum. Mainstream media misses protests point. Albuquerque has been in the news a lot this weekend, and the focus of these news stories has almost always been wrong. Almost all these stories seem to be about how the latest protests here on Sunday, March 30th, over the Albuquerque Police Department's latest killings got way out of hand or turned into riots, and none of them seem to be at all interested in anything other than the official stories fed by official channels to the media. Judging by social media chatter, many people who live here have been taken in by them. Two, choosing to focus on rare instances of vandalism, rumors of protesters' violence, the really not at all tragic obstruction of traffic, and the general sense of rowdy displeasure evident in many videos of the day's events. Cherry-picking moments from those videos, or from that long day of multiple sites of protest involving hundreds of individuals, I have no doubt you could find some people whose behavior was objectionable, but you could do that with literally any movement in history. Just know that the cause here remains just, and know that the real story here is that APD's response to these almost entirely peaceful protests has been militaristic, armed to the teeth, and fascistic. I watched firsthand standing toward the front of a crowd of perhaps 100 unarmed protesters on the edge of Civic Plaza late Sunday night as we were almost completely surrounded by literally an entire police force prepared not for a group of dissatisfied citizens, but for war. And that is not an exaggeration. There were hundreds of armed police, all with riot shields, batons, gas masks, and guns, in row upon row upon row. The smell of tear gas was everywhere, stinging everyone's eyes and throats, and on every side but directly behind us, I could see police with their faces hidden, machine guns or assault rifles in their hands, police cars, flashing lights, and armored vehicles, the kind you'd typically see in Iraq or Afghanistan. We believe you now that you're not too extreme. I shouted to the ranks of cops advancing ominously around us through the darkness, and the people nearest me laughed nervously. Because the situation was laughable. More than anything that night, that's what I saw. Absurdity. Ridiculousness. That night and that day, APD was a portrait of laughable excess. They'd have been even funnier if I hadn't been worried the whole time they might shoot us. Earlier in the evening, I saw a similar situation, with perhaps 20 committed protesters standing on the northeast corner of University and Central, with about 60 police cars parked in the roads nearby, a policeman with a machine gun directing traffic, and a crowd of police donning gas masks, shouldering rifles, and staring daggers through anyone foolhardy enough to walk around outdoors. 
in the nearby Central United Methodist Church parking lot. Just as many cars and police were waiting in the darkness, along with armored vehicles and an armed response unit getting ready. If you live here, get out and be part of these protests. They're important, and there will be more. To paraphrase Skyler from Breaking Bad, we need to keep this city safe from the people who keep this city safe. Protest, go to city council meetings and get informed. Read anything you can on the subject, sign petitions, write letters, and help make the movement one you can be proud of. The problem is bigger than a few violent cops. The problem is a system that trains those cops to be violent and then excuses them from all accountability when they, for instance, shoot a homeless camper to death. The problem is that we have become a police state. As citizens, it's, it's both sane and adult to demand that the armed presence that controls our city be subject to oversight and reform, particularly when that presence has had such an exceptionally lethal recent past. And please, don't let criticisms you may have of nuances of various corners of the protests blind you to the legitimacy of the larger cause. Citizens standing up for their rights is not going to cost the city any jobs, that boring, small-minded complaint. If anything, it's empowering us. And in a group as varied as the hundreds of protesters who took part in Sunday's protests, judging the whole by the actions of any small part would be silly. A crowd isn't a monolithic entity. Sure, hacktivist group Anonymous was at these protests, but these weren't anonymous events. Hippies were there, but these weren't hippie events. Punks were there, but these weren't punk events. The inclination to portray all the protesters as the same is wrong. Only one group there was unanimously armed and prepared for violence. That group was APD, and they looked preposterous. Listen to that thing I wrote. Intense. Yeah. Yeah. Just listen to it. Hopefully, I want to find. I have the audio from that event, and it's on. I just got to find yeah. it and send it to you. Uh, but I feel like it really captures like the emotions of that of that moment, especially yeah. the Boyd thing, because you yeah. saw. Oh yeah. We had a chance as yeah. a citizenry to look yeah. at the footage. Yeah. And come to our own conclusions, and yeah. for the most part, we came to the conclusion that it was messed up. Like Ugh. that was not the right response for what happened there. Albuquerque, go out to the James Boyd site. You can find it. It's in the foothills. You can drive Copper to his end and walk to it really quickly. There's a cross still there. The memorial is pretty small at this point. But you can go Was there. Was it you on can... the University Hill? What's that? The hill that had the U on it from the oh, uh, U-Mound. U-Mound? Yeah, it U-Mound? Was near, it was near U-Mound, yeah. yeah Not I on U-Mound, so. but near okay. it. Yeah, just a little bit uh, northeast of there, um, if, I, if I'm right. But it's it's a very sobering. I had never watched the video because I just can't handle watching violence. Oh, you haven't re- seen it? Well, no, no, no. I had never watched it until I went out and I found that site myself, and yeah. I felt like it was appropriate to watch it once I was out at that right. site to see. I had it. just read the articles about it. I just don't like violent stuff, man, and I really don't like real. I mean, I remember my friends watching Faces of Death and all those violent, yeah. real death shows and stuff when I was growing up, and just I'm so turned off by this stuff. Right. I'm a I'm a gentle soul. I just want to, uh, but I, I feel like this is an important Nazi thing for people to like see. That, yeah. You know, yeah, and um, it's true. But I so I watched it out there, and it was so affecting, man. Watching this poor old man, this poor confused old man, fumble around and not know what to do. He was like a PTSD yeah, victim, I mean, he was man. Clearly mentally disturbed. I mean, watching him get those knives out was like he didn't know what to do. There was flashbangs yeah. going off. There were dogs lunging at him. Tasers were in the air. It was just a really crazy, sad time for this poor old dude, and uh, you know, and it just 
it just got so much worse. But I mean, some of those people went in there with the worst attitudes. One of those police officers yeah. said, admit, said to another police officer, and this came out later in court documents and so on, I'm going to shoot him in the penis. Well, you I know? think that's, that is, that's indicative of the culture, oh. right? Like you have a police department culture that's yeah. antagonistic. Yeah. And that leads to this kind of thing. It makes me sad, man. I mean, he shouted, one of them shouted booyah yeah. after they booyah. fired the rifle. Oh, like he's playing ping guns. pong and he's an idiot. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's so sad. And, 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 and it's sad to me how our town is framed in tragedy. We have the West Mesa murders on the west side. We have the James Boyd killings on the east side. We have Lily Garcia on the freeway. We have, it just... I don't think you can have this kind of population concentration without... It's just sad, man. It takes a psychic toll on all of us, and it's just hard. Like we could have a beautiful city of peace and love, and and sorry if I sound like a hippie, but that's what I want. I want my kids to grow up safe. We could certainly move toward that. How about that? Ugh, man. I I mean, it's it's a process. It's a process, and we've all got to learn. How many people have to die before we get to a a (laughs) decent status quo? You know, it makes me super mad. Isn't there a, a, a Jesus Christ quote like? The, the current generation shall have shall perish from the earth? I don't know. Maybe, something like that. Something but, like that. Yeah, but yeah. you know, it's like you, 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 you're raised in the time you're in. Yeah, you know? it's true. Um, mm-hmm. I want to I thank our listeners for bearing, through, bearing with us through this. You know, some of our stuff yeah. is a little more lighthearted. Yeah, yeah. A little, some we of have our stuff is episodes. more historic. Yeah. yeah. Um, Deal with it, though, is what I well, say. I think Deal the thing is, it. this is a complicated issue. Yeah. We're struggling <laughs> to make sense of it ourselves. Yeah. Uh, that's why and we, we, feel we brought ourselves. Jeff Proctor in so yeah. that he could like kind of lay it all out yeah. for Thank us. Thank you, Jeff Proctor. You are cool, man. I want to be friends with you. You're a neat dude. Yeah. I enjoyed that interview. And I, I hope that you know, even if you maybe disagree with the conclusions that uh, that Mike and I come to, yeah. or Jeff Proctor comes to, that you at least that you listen to it and you yeah. you consider Get the facts, truth. Yeah. Can I say something really quick? Sure. So. Uh, I teach at a for-profit college, and my first class that I ever taught had a cop in it. And this guy was mm-hmm. somebody who had literally tear-gassed me at a protest previously. Like yeah. He told me a story of one of the protests that I had been at from his perspective. And oh. I got to know this guy. And I got That's to like fascinating, him. yeah. I got to like him. And I realized that this was somebody who is a human, too. That's you know, yeah. and he was a nice guy to some extent. He was a little bit religious. He was always talking about the Bible, and I was annoyed by that because it was just like, okay, already, I get it. I read that book twice, the Bible. Okay, it's a book, <laughs> but um, you know, it was you know there were things between us that like we would never agree on. Right. But I also felt like you know what what we need to do overall is all of us need to talk. We need to have conversation. We need to t- find people that disagree with us and we need to respect them as who they are and, and, and where they're at. But we need to be honest about ourselves too. We need to not say, oh, well, that's just my opinion. No, if you really feel something deeply, you should talk about it and you should break it out and you should, you should own it. And right. that means even if you disagree with me 100%, and we should have good conversations, and we should find common ground, and we should find peace and respect between each other, because that's the only way out of this stuff, ultimately. We are all in this together. We are. Ultimately. We, have to, we have to realize that like we're all human beings. We're all slightly better than, you know, we're slightly more evolved than chimpanzees in some ways. That's not accurate, evolution-wise. But, um, right. but, but we have like an ability to make choice and uh, make choices and think about these things in a complex way and to write symphonies and to make great art and to do these things that no other species before us has been quite able to do. And we need to recognize uh, that in each other and work together to like understand each other and live and, and not destroy our entire future and not 
turn our peace into something darker and worse. Like, why? What's the point? Who wants to keep this crap going? Do you right. want to keep fighting forever? I, I don't. No. I want to just be happy and write books and like walk around among trees. <laughs> That's it. That's all I want to do. You know? I think uh, it's a it's a noble thing to, to shoot for. Oh, man. All, all right. right. We should probably wrap this up, huh? Rock and roll, dude. Okay. Hey, I like having a podcast with you, man. You're cool. <laughs> You're a cool guy, too. <laughs> Thanks, Ty. Um, and I want to thank right. the following patrons. Oh, let's hear this. Julie Bannerman, Christopher Suski, man. Courtney Fitzgerald. What? My wife. <laughs> Farrell M. Smith, your dad. Oh, my dad. Hilarious. And Isaac Clark, who just uh, who just joined the Patreon gang. So you can go check us out at uh, patreon.com slash uh, City on the Edge. Um, Imagine if we could just devote ourselves full time to City well, on the Edge. We it could, would get better, you guys. We'd, we'd fix all this mess we made. City on, it's it's <laughs> patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot yeah. com slash City on the Edge. Yeah. Um, you can go on there and you can help us uh, continue to fund ourselves. We'd be grateful. I'd also like to thank the uh, Citizens Media Group oh who gave God. us a, a great big donation. They were so nice. Um, and uh, and David you, Fitzgerald, my father-in-law, who's also kind of helping us out with some uh, promotion and stuff. That so guy's awesome. We're doing, we're doing good. We want to keep building. We want to yeah. keep making this hey, better. I want to thank you also if you only just listen. Thank yeah. you for listening to our podcast. Absolutely. We spend a lot of time on this, and I really appreciate you just just being an audience. It's so cool. Thank and you. as always, thank you to uh, to Lady Uranium. And, um, is she gonna do our closure music? Yeah, she usually nice. does. And um, who does the intro music? Uh, Weather Kings, Soltero. Yeah, Soltero. Check him out. His Bandcamp page, amazing. Check out his album Hits. Okay. All right. I love you all individually yes. as well as yes. Come on, let's all hang out.